The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, we're going to talk to the one, the only Dr. Tom Williams. Yeah, you want to do an episode on immunity, you call a molecular immunologist. That's called going to the guy. That's right. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. So after that fiasco, are you afraid to mow your lawn? Oh, man. Yeah, I'm afraid I would of be. everything. I would be. I'm naturally afraid of everything, <laughs> especially yellow jackets. Yes. We talked about that. I know. Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing all right. It took me weeks Dude. to get over that attack. Dude. For those who aren't aware of what we're talking about, I got attacked by yellow jackets again. Mowing his lawn. Again. His hatred of insects just grows and grows every day. It's the hatred that's bringing them to my yard. That is. You're summoning them. Anyway, how are you, Patty? I'm doing great. How awesome. Awesome. I I'm think good. I already asked you. You did. How um, many times do I have to ask you per day? I, I, four or five, probably. All right. Uh, this is a podcast it's called mm-hmm. The Lab Report. It's brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. Thank you, Genova. Thank you. Uh, it's where we talk about things like specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and functional integrative precision medicine. All of those things. And if you also like those things, maybe go to iTunes or Spotify and perhaps subscribe to the show. You know, it's free. You could subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. That's the cool anything, thing, right? right? Yeah. doesn't cost any money. It costs also, time, and time uh, is money, but... Other than, I mean... No, you're just parsing. I know, I'm sorry. You're parsing. I did. But that being said, you can also rate, review, leave us some stars, yada, yada. If you have additional feedback, you can send your feedbacks to podcast at gdx.net. That's our email address. And if you are a patient interested in Genova's testing or interested in connecting with a Genova client, you could check out connect.gdx.net. Nice. So not only were the four yellow jacket stings pretty right. bad uh-huh. but the worst part was as i was running away and i managed to make it to my front door there was yeah. still one yellow jacket crawling oh, no. up my shirt no and no. waiting to sting again because the thing is these monsters right they can sting multiple times they don't care well it, you know it's starting to add up here we had the ants which yeah. you hate yeah we had the ticks you yep. had a visceral reaction to the ticks yeah now we're at yellow jackets yeah what's next mosquitoes Oh, okay. I mean, things that suck your blood, things that bite, sting. Fair. Uh, all on the list. I'm not arguing General that nuisances. List. <laughs> I'm actually pretty good with spiders. I'm cool with spiders. Oh, good. How do you feel about spiders? I'm okay with spiders. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Good. All right, Michael, enough etymology. Etymology is the study of word origin, Patty. <laughs> enough entomology. Uh-huh. What are we doing today? We are going to talk to Dr. Tom Williams. I am so happy. I love talking to Dr. Tom Williams. Anytime you want to get the skinny, anytime you want to be in the know, anytime you want to have complex subjects (laughs) explained to you in a way that makes sense and you're like, your light bulb goes off or on, uh, you talk to Dr. Tom Williams. No, legitimately, he writes these books called Roadmap Series of various things, and we use them as references for a lot of our podcast fodder. Yeah, exactly. All thank you, Doctor Tom, for all of our content because <laughs> it's all yours. And so, so let's go to the guy. Let's let's just do it. 
Patty, as always, super excited I to know. talk to Dr. Tom, Tom Williams. Williams. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Tom. Tom earned his PhD in 1996 from the Medical College of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he studied molecular biology and immunology. After his graduate studies, he joined Orthomolecular Products, a premier physician channel dietary supplement manufacturer, establishing the roles of both science and regulatory affairs. Since that time, he's become an expert in the mechanisms, actions, and therapeutic uses of nutritional and non-pharmacological agents, as as well as the complex regulatory and quality issues related to dietary supplement manufacturing and marketing. This expertise allowed him to begin writing and teaching, and in 2014, he began writing a series of teaching manuals or roadmaps that outline and evaluate the evidence for the principles and protocols that are fundamental to the functional and integrative medicine community. These textbooks explore the root cause of pathophysiology of complex chronic diseases, along with the evidence and mechanisms in non-pharmacological therapeutic solutions. Tom teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Pharmacy, where he holds an appointment as an adjunct assistant professor and lectures widely to a range of healthcare professionals interested in leveraging lifestyle and natural agents as first-line therapies. Today, Tom serves as a consultant to organizations within the natural products, integrative, and functional medicine space, where he endeavors to make a real difference in the health and lives of millions. He lives and works off the beaten path outside of Stevens Point, Wisconsin, with his family, where he has too many hobbies to list here. <laughs> and that is that true. <laughs> I, I'm exhausted you just reading my bio. I feel like I need to take a rest. <laughs> well, welcome back to the lab yeah, report, so Dr. Williams. Well, I am glad to be back with you guys. Awesome. Awesome. Well, since your last appearance on the show, you released the second edition of your Immune Function Roadmap, Supporting Immune Function, a Lifestyle and Nutrient Approach, which we have here in the Medical Affairs Department, and we are healthily obsessed with it. <laughs> Interestingly, you were updating this during the pandemic, and knowing that you have a PhD in molecular immunology, do you think, because of the pandemic, clinicians now place a different importance on the immune system in general? Is it finally getting its due? Well, I, I wish I could say yes, but I think, as you well know, uh, the last several years have been just fraught, fraught with debates of, right. of every sort. True. Um, so I think immunology became part of it, but I don't know that we got to the point of people thinking, let's support the immune system mm -hmm. as much as they were just arguing about vaccines or, right. you know, what causes a cytokine storm or, or, you know, kinds of things like that. So I think a couple things, I mean, I think we made some headways and I think we have probably the next several years to, to kind of capture that attention before it maybe gets drifted onto another thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we, we talked about a susceptibility to the virus. So, you know, people want to know what, what makes you more susceptible to the virus. And as it turns out, what I, what I tell people is what we learned a lot was there was a lot of susceptibility to the virus, but it, the same things that made it susceptible to other chronic diseases. Mm. So obesity came out mm. uh, kind of out of the, uh, out of that mix quite heavily, obviously age. Um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about age and the immune system, because I think that is important. Um, so you have vulnerability to the, you know, so we talked a lot about the, you know, the, the ACE2 receptor. Right. And we right. talked about a lot, of, you know, we talked about all these, you know, uh, proteases and, and kinds of things. And I think it, we got lost in the weeds about just like how the immune system works. So we kind of got hyper-focused on some really minuscule components of it. Um, and then I think this, uh, this bigger picture that I, that I teach, um, which I think is the heart of all my teaching is the idea of building metabolic reserve. Mm -hmm. So building reserve capacity in the lungs and in the liver and the GI tract, you know, we don't realize that that as that, 
as those tissue reserve capacities went down in age and as a cause of obesity and things that would just kind of suppress tissue uh, health, um, it made them more vulnerable. So that's another bigger issue there. Um, then there, then there became sort of the vulnerability to hyperinflammation and cytokine storms. And that became sort of another, even though that's an immune conversation, it kind of got lost again in the weeds of, right. of other sorts of things. Right. And, and, and then ironically, uh, because I actually did some writing and I did some help uh, writing with some other groups of people and publishing some questions about botanicals. Cause you know, the idea was everybody's taking echinacea mm-hmm. and uh, elderberry and things like that. And, and right. what, and if you look in the literature, you know, it upregulates IL-6 or it upregulates TNF-alpha yeah. in, in these contexts. And they're like, well, could this cause a cytokine storm? And then there were people writing blogs about, you know, don't take elderberry because it's going to cause this cytokine storm. And I kind of went in the literature and I showed, I kind of showed that that's a misuse of some, some of the in vitro data. Hmm. And when you started looking at, you know, but these botanicals in actually human subjects, it typically reduced inflammation and there was no evidence that you could trigger a cytokine storm with elderberry. So, so I would say the pandemic definitely created lots of conversations that were immune related, Mm. but I, I I don't know that we've changed a huge component of people now who are saying immune support is now my, you know, main goal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Can you, cause you said this and it was, curious to me for those who might not understand this term that you use metabolic reserve can you go into that just briefly and kind of define what what you mean when you use that that phrase yeah so i, I use two ideas physiological resilience which is sort of the ability to you know some some change happens we have you know physiological changes all the time we eat a meal and that's a classic example you know our blood sugar goes up our insulin's supposed to go up and you know then you have you know glucagon and there's all these changes that happen and so that resilience to be able to deal with that event, in this case, maybe call it uh, glucose disposal, um, in, involves all kinds of different aspects. Mm-hmm. And so uh, all of those things need to take place usually within you know the couple hours time period. Uh, but the, what I call metabolic reserve is this larger capacity that we have, our antioxidant reserve, our micronutrient reserve, our um, you could call our neuroplasticity uh, a, a, a metabolic reserve of, of neurons. Um, our detoxification capacity. Mm. Um, mm. I would even I would even say today the microbiome, uh, you know, the posture or the or the diversity is a is a reserve capacity. Mm. So all of these reserve capacity and insulin resistance or or insulin sensitivity is sort of a reserve capacity. So we rely upon all of these. Um, processes in the body so that every time we go through a a change, a physiological resilient change, that the body then pulls pulls on these reserves Mm -hmm. to reestablish. So how can I reestablish myself for a long-term, you know, I'm not just eating one meal, I'm eating thousands of meals. So what is my, what is my reserve capacity to, to dispose of glucose every single day? And what happens we, as we know, what we call the metabolic continuum is we lose that capacity or that reserve capacity. And so as we're l- losing, you know, let's say in the immune system, our naive T cell capacity, how, how many T cells do you have left that haven't, you know, responded to an antigen yet? Mm-hmm. As you age, that reserve capacity goes down. So, so, you know, this, this idea of metabolic reserve depends on the tissue. Sometimes people call it organ reserve, but I like the word metabolic reserve because it kind of crosses some tissue barriers. But um, 
So in general, I'll just end by this, you know, so things like obesity, chronic stress, um, insulin resistance, drain the metabolic reserves of so many tissues. And yeah. then that's why you get vulnerabilities like Alzheimer's or, you know, arthritis. And they seem like very different organ systems, but they're really dependent on the same metabolic reserves. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's, mm -hmm. I, I love that. It's sort of like a, a macroscopic adaptability of the systems. Like it's, it's really yeah. interesting. And, um, and they draw upon each other. Obviously they, they, it's not just, you know, right. you could one, one ironic one, I'll give you one example of, of a, of a reserve, that can be good and bad, and that's fat mass. So fat mass is a buffering system for many things that go wrong in the body short term. Mm. You have too much cortisol, if you have too much glucose, if you have too much toxins, oftentimes fat mass helps us buffer that. Unfortunately, it's not meant to be a long-term buffering system mm -hmm. because then it kind of turns on us. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, if you're if you need calories six months from now and you store some fat now, but if I, if I, if I'm not going to burn those calories and I'm going to keep adding to them, then all of a sudden it becomes inflammatory right. and, you know, problematic. So, it, you know, yeah. you have to understand there's, there's always a, you know, you can't, right. you don't want too much of reserve in, in some of these, uh, uh, metabolic capacities. Right. That makes sense. Yep. Totally. Right. And you alluded to also just kind of the problems that come out when you're, you know, you're bouncing between in vitro and the sort of like microscopic evaluation of the immune system in the weeds with the ACE2 receptors. And it just, it, it brings me to, there's so much fast paced evolving literature, especially with regard to COVID and everything that was coming out so quickly. I mean, how do you sort through all of that information and sometimes noise to do something like update a book like this? Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to get caught in the fervor of, of everything because you know i don't know if you noticed but the the normal uh time frame for publishing and the vetting of information was pretty much uh if it was covid related it could get published immediately there, oh. there, there wasn't a lot of peer review yeah. right there wasn't a lot of timing right. so and of course most of it was open access which was nice um so you, we got access to a lot of information but as you know there is a lot of noise. And mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of noise. Anybody that saw an association or a pattern just published it. And we got a lot of information. Um, we can talk about later, but like, you know, if you look at like vitamin D and COVID, uh, you know, there's probably, uh, who knows, 100, 200 publications. Mm -hmm. And some of them were helpful. Others were confusing. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to make my update about COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously I, I, when I was updating a portion of the book that um, had to do with something that might be viral related or something like that, I did want to see, you know, what was going on in the recently with COVID on those things. Um, and so I definitely look there, but I would say that we're, we'll look back and I think find that a lot of the data published in the last couple of years is not going to necessarily be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, it, it might I mean, it might help us ask better questions. So if somebody mm -hmm. follows up later with more refined research, um, I will say that when it comes to converting in vitro data or, you know, things that you can do in cell culture, um, translating that to humans is a lot more complicated than people think, especially when it comes to natural products research. Mm -hmm. um, you know, things that work in a test tube, even like vitamin C, for instance, you know, we did a lot of studies back in the day on vitamin C. And I remember somebody saying at one point, um, you know, because there was a negative study, you know, vitamin C given to 
uh, mouse immune cells or whatever did X. And so I remember somebody saying, well, then don't put vitamin C on your mouse uh, immune cell or something, <laughs> you know, because, because, you know, it's like what, what that means taken oral, when you take something orally, how the body uses that, changes that, incorporates that, and what actually gets to the tissues, both negatively and positively, doesn't always pan out like we think it does. Or in many cases, like phytochemicals, they really work by another mechanism, typically in the microbiome, and those chemicals never make it to the, the cells themselves. So I would say that um, I hope I leverage the, you know, the limited amount of information that I could glean from the COVID literature for this book, but I didn't want this book to live as a COVID-19 yeah. right. uh, summary. Got right. it. Got yeah. it. Got it. But so let's talk a little bit about this book. Um, in it, you touched on a topic that doesn't get a lot of press, a lot of attention and immunosenescence. So can you talk to us about what it is and why understanding the concept of immunosenescence might be important for immune health? Yeah, so I think, you know, this book is really trying to help clinicians understand sort of the basic components of how to support the immune system. So I've got a series of like 10 principles that I talk about, um, you know, barrier function and, you know, kind of things like that. Uh, I won't go through the list now, but um, one of the things that I, when I changed from the first edition to the second edition is I moved this immunosenescence component up to the front of the book and I gave it its own chapter. Even though it's very short, I wanted to give it its own sort of due. Mm -hmm. And the reason I, I did that is because immunosenescence basically is just sort of generically, it's like how the immune system changes with age, mm -hmm. aging. So how does senescence or the aging of the immune system um, cause changes in the immune system? And so the two big things that you think of when the immune system begins to age is it loses its discretion, meaning its ability to, um, to differentiate between self and non-self, harmful and harmless. So that's one area, immune discretion is lost or, or, or diminished, I shouldn't say it's lost, it's diminished. And then the ability to respond is also law, uh, diminished. So um, except in the case, interesting of inflammation. So we'll, we'll, mm. we'll talk about that. Okay. So, um, and there's a whole bunch of different reasons. So the reason it's important is because as, if we can understand how the immune system, because essentially immunosenescence is the, is the loss of immune reserve capacity. Mm -hmm. So if we can understand what happens when you begin losing the reserve capacity in the immune system, we can then learn that that is happening earlier in people with chronic stress, with uh, obesity, you know, so all of the things that sort of drive early senescence of tissues or early metabolic reserve capacity mm -hmm. loss, we can learn about those things that are going on in immunosenescence and say, okay, can I start looking for these things? So things like uh, decreased my, mitochondrial function. Mm -hmm. So we know that that's pretty, you know, universal, actually a sign of, you know, uh, some pharmaceutical drugs that decrease mitochondrial function, you know, you know, that's going to be causing a problem. Um, genome instability, you know, anytime you start, because the, the immune system is, is a, is a replicative, uh, you know, cell system, mm -hmm. um, increased inflammatory, uh, we see that in aging and we see that vulnerability in obesity and other, other chronic diseases. Um, something that doesn't get its due as much is what I call reduced proteostasis and autophagy. And essentially what this means is as cells age, they don't fold their proteins very well, okay. or they, and it's a, you know, it's a chaperone issue 
typically if you if you know anything about chaperones they're the proteins that help other proteins fold so as as they're not being able to fold very well these become essentially toxins within the cell they say i can't handle this and i need to then go through the process of you know destroying or getting rid of these proteins and if need be autophagy is the process where this occurs in a number of different organelles uh, within the cell and the cell itself may die uh, to, to kind of chew itself up so that process unfortunately as the cells age they don't do that very well hmm. um and so uh, we start we're seeing autophagy as being a big you know that that word is being used quite a bit in mm -hmm. a whole bunch mm -hmm. of aging systems um and and it really helps the immune system sort of clean up itself and and refresh get rid of cells that shouldn't be hanging around and then stimulate stem cells that are, are supposed to you know refresh the system so all of these factors that we see in immunosenescence are things that we're beginning to see in, in immune dysfunction in younger people and so that's one of the reasons i wanted to um and then if you understand why it happens obviously the aging of cells why we start looking at other chronic diseases that unfortunately we used to think of most of these chronic diseases occurring in people's 40s and 50s and now we're obviously seeing the signs and symptoms of these things in, in teenagers so it's it's a real problem and so immunosenescence sort of becomes the canary in the coal mine mm -hmm. as far as mm -hmm. uh, understanding how things are going to work and then now we can start looking elsewhere for them Got I it. like that. Yeah, that's a great description. Mm -hmm. I, and it makes me wonder, so you've got your two components that you mentioned, the discretion and, and kind of like the vigilance being the two kind of capacities uh, that we that get lost in immunosenescence. So what can you what can we do to try to encourage both uh, discretion and, and vigilance in the immune system? I'm sure there's lots of things, but like, you know, nutritionally, are there certain things we think about? Um, you know, just give some advice as to what might help. Well, I mean, it, again, the, the big picture, like those those 10 factors that I that I talk about, um, I, let me just run through them real quick sure. and you'll kind of get a sense of where I'm coming from. Yeah. So yeah. and these are not in any particular order, uh, but, you know, maintaining a, a commensal friendly environment. And I think, you know, we we probably don't give enough due to the fact that most of the immune system is trained in the gut. It doesn't I mean it exists there, but it gets trained there. Um, appropriate hygiene practices. So, I mean, that's kind of universal that we kind of learned a lot about that, you know, hand washing, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, re rebuilding the micronutrients and antioxidant reserves. So we'll talk a little bit about the potential for micronutrients and antioxidants. Um, but it, but oxidative damage is probably, um, I mean, we, we've talked about it and it's kind of one of the things that we've talked about for years and years and years, but we don't, it, it really is, reactive oxygen species really do put a lot of strain on cells. Um, the mitochondria. So we, when you start thinking of micronutrients and looking at, you know, why do certain micronutrients, why are we thinking of antioxidants? Well, the reactive oxygen species, if, if, if they are going to basically poison the mitochondria, you're not going to have, um, you know, activity of, of a great activity in the immune cell cells. So we've talked for many years about mitochondrial, um, support as an immune sort of immune, uh, component, um, big picture. The immune system, like most tissues, is highly sensitive to circadian rhythm. Uh, so is it any wonder that sleep and jet lag and these kinds of things are so important to the immune system? But it's because all of, almost all of this, the immune system uh, cell and uh, genetic expression is circulates on a, on a um, circadian rhythm, on a, a diurnal rhythm. Mm. So if you're not helping that, uh, by sleeping right, by by maintaining, you know, eating at the right times during the day, et cetera. 
um, you're going to you're going to have a problem. Um, one that you guys obviously talk a lot about and one that I write a lot about is stress and the HPA axis. Mm-hmm. Cortisol is a anti-inflammatory. Great. It's fine. But it's an anti-inflammatory because it's a powerful immune suppressant. Right. Um, so it suppresses the immune function and it also can, you know, interfere with cortisol's normal circadian rhythm, especially if you're if, if you're using sort of cortisol to manage everything like glucose and and stress and everything like that. Um, so, um, chronic inflammatory signals that are coming, not from the immune system directly, but like from triggers. So this is again, where we think of like, um, dietary inflammatory components coming from the diet. Um, and then going back to the gut barrier function. So, Mm. you know, we talk about the microbiome in the lumen, but the barrier function that creates not only, you know, immunogenic, uh, particles getting directly to um, to the immune cells. So we get, you know, mimicking or cross reactivity, and then we get, you know, these inf- inflammatory components. So when we start thinking about like, how do you fix this? It really is the, it is really a functional medicine approach. This, mm-hmm. this broad integrative approach. You want to be thinking about what you're eating, when you're eating, how the microbiome are dealing with it, how that's going to affect the barrier function. And then, you know, all of these other things, stress and, and, and that's because the immune system, re- if you think about, I, also, I often teach that the HPA axis, the gut are two of the biggest uh, surveillance systems in our body. And the way they communicate all this to the rest of the tissues is the immune system. Mm-hmm. So these are the three surveillance systems. And so managing the brain at the top, the GI and the immune system really are, are a highly coordinated system. And so, um, I mean, that's sort of like the big picture that I typically teach um, in the book. You know, it's funny. Um, As you were talking, I was thinking that same thing. This is functional medicine when you're talking about the different aspects of metabolic reserve. I thought you were going to say you were going through the list of all the things that need to be fixed (laughs) across those 10 items. No, No. and then I was thinking, like, how to address immunosenescence is functional medicine. So I I think on the back end of a pandemic, this is where functional medicine is going to step up and and be the, the North Star. Yeah, no doubt. Right. And, and I think, I think, you know, um, unfortunately, some people within you know the community of integrative medicine will, will automatically jump to natural immunomodulators, you know, so, you know, and, and that's, those are, they can be helpful, but they, I think they can be leveraged best in the context of all the things we just said. If you're, if a person's not sleeping, they're not eating well, they've got gut barrier issues. And then you say, well, here is echinacea. Um, that's going to have a very limited, broad effect uh, for them if they're not fixing these other things um, go, that are going on. If they're fixing these other things, some of them, I, those things then I think will have a much better, um, you know, effect. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. And we, we tend to think of these as being kind of acute therapies, but you're speaking more to, and I, I don't think we talk about this as much about nutrient reserve and how you alluded to how important having nutrient reserve is for the overall impact of the immune system and how much of a draw, you know, even an infection is. So can you talk a little bit more about that side of things? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously one of the things that we did, I mean, probably, like I said, vitamin D came out the the most in, in, uh, in the COVID literature, partly because, you know, there's, there, there's such a rise in the number of people testing for vitamin D. So we have a larger pool of people, for instance, if you say, well, you know, did, did, did people before the pandemic routinely get their whole, 
you know, all their nutrient status uh, tested? No, the, the answer is typically no. I mean, people aren't going in and looking for everything, but vitamin D is very common. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you did see some literature on vitamin D and then some other things that are commonly tested in, in patients are things like B12. So you saw some data on B12, a little bit maybe on zinc because that's often maybe commonly measured, but a lot of other things aren't commonly measured. So that's why we didn't get the data on that. Um, if you look, if we go from micronutrients, let's, if we start at macronutrients and we just start asking, there's a lot less we know about that because most of that data comes from true malnutrition. So mm -hmm. most of that's like third world, you know, uh, often children um, where we see, you know, a, a severe loss or, or severe deficiency in protein. Mm -hmm. and, and we know that that affects the immune system. Typically, um, Western subjects aren't low in protein content. They might they might be out of balance with with their macronutrients, but typically from a from an absolute level, they're they're typically getting enough protein. Um, they're often getting a lot more sugar. And there's you know there's I think in our in our industry or in in our community, there's a lot of people think believe that uh, high levels of sucrose and fructose um, you know depletes the immune system, and it's based on a I actually mentioned the paper that originally was mentioned as sort of like an older paper, sort of an in vitro uh, research. Um, and then there's some human data, but I think that's probably more so going on with the microbiome. So I think if we follow a, a low fiber, high sugar uh, effect on the microbiome and its ability to increase, let's say candida or other things that then create other imbalances in the gut, I think that's where we're seeing that. Um, probably the macronutrient that, that I think probably gets the most attention on immunomodulation would be fatty acids. Um, and there is, I think a lot of the data is on sort of the omega-3, omega-6 mm -hmm. ratio. I think there's a lot of good data, as you guys know, on omega-3, uh, especially the long chain EPA and DHA in particular for uh, reducing inflammation and modulating immune systems. So I think I think that's probably the biggest macronutrient where supplementation, let's say a fish oil, could probably make the biggest difference. But when, when we when we're looking at the micronutrients, I mean, um, the number of micronutrients. I mean, if we know how they function, we know that you know there's papers and papers about how vitamin A and vitamin E and vitamin D and selenium, you know, zinc, uh, they affect the immune system directly. But supplementing them in people who don't have major deficiencies, that's, you know, the data is hard to kind of tease out. Right. Yeah. And this is, an, this is the other thing, which I mentioned in the book, which I, which I, which is, is um, I think is notable is immune system. The immune system doesn't have a series of biomarkers that says this, your immune system is good. Mm -hmm. So what, what am I measuring? So do I, you know, so if I'm trying to measure, you know, cortisol and I can say, okay, I'm, I'm trying to use that as a surrogate market for like what's going on in the HPA axis, or I, you know, I can measure vitamin D and say, okay, yeah, this is where you are in the status. But what am I measuring when I measure the immune system? Am I measuring the number of cells? Am I measuring how active just the NK cells are? Or am I measuring, you know, just some cytokines? Uh, because everything's in context. I want my cell, I want more white blood cells and more cytokines when I have an infection. But I don't want that when I don't have an infection. So, you know, so it's really hard to tease out this in the literature. Mm -hmm. So what we what we end up doing is we do a lot of surrogate testing, in vitro testing, um, and then big epidemiological things. So that's where the vitamin D comes in. So we know that, you know, there seems to be a strong association with low levels of vitamin D, um, either by intake or by status, typically status. 
and increased risk, increased severity of, of, of infections. Um, this has been known a long time for, with the geography. So we've thought of, you know, vitamin D is not very available in, in the northern climate versus, you know, um, the equatorial climates. And so there's been these trends in autoimmunity and trends in, you know, what vitamin D related, you know, like type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes actually as well, and other things that, that may be going on there. So, um, and I think COVID brought, you know, a whole bunch of papers um, that seem to suggest there is an association, I think a clear association between vitamin D levels um, and vulnerability to viral infections, including COVID. Whether or not that, you know, th that was part of the the inflammatory component or whether it was the, the infective component. Now we're seeing with, uh, with the more infective strains of COVID, pretty much uh, anybody's vulnerable, at least at some level. And, and it's because not everybody got the same strain and not every strain was quite as damaging. It's the data is very dirty, mm -hmm. you know, as far as trying to gather all that together. Interesting. It's such a good point. Like there's, there really is no like biomarker you go to, to say someone has good immune function. It's all in context. I never actually really thought about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. We've got to develop that, Michael, the yeah. immune biomarker. <laughs> well, and of course, yeah, if, I mean, if somebody could develop a, a, like a panel that was like, yeah. Your immune system function it can be measured this way. There it is, Michael. Um, Challenge that's not accepted. too invasive. That's not too invasive. Um, <laughs> well, I would. I think of the gut too. So maybe sure. we can talk a little bit about the gut. Yeah, and you know, it's, you can't have an immune discussion without no. the gut. And you were talking about how essentially so much of the immune system is kind of trained there. Right. Um, and we also talk about things like fecal secretory IgA and you know how the intestinal permeability aspect, the gut barrier function, um, and then there's the galt, the lymphoid tissue. So it's, there's a lot going on. Maybe talk a little bit about how the galt influences the immune function, you know, systemically, because I think that's a little bit of a blind spot for a lot of us. It is. It is. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the galt, the gut associated lymphoid tissue. I mean, it's just basically all the different components of the immune system. Um, when I, t when I think about like the barrier function of the gut, um, it's, it's like multi-layered. We can just think about it as the, the actual, you know, enterocytes themselves and, you know, the tight junctions that hold them together. Mm -hmm. But the, the mucus that they produce, mm -hmm. which is obviously very important, it's kind of ignored sometimes. The, the, the bacteria in the lumen, which talk to the immune system, that talk to the actually signal in the enterocytes and change the tight junctions and things like that, either negatively, you know, pull them apart because... Uh, um, there's some sort of uh, toxin uh, signaling that, or actually there's many commensal organisms that actually promote tight junctions. So the when we think of a barrier, and I, I think that probably the better terminology I often use is the interface. It's really, I mean, bar the barrier is, is one aspect. It's really more of the colon. Uh, but when it comes to where the immune system needs to interact, um, it's more of an interface, uh, but it needs to be a controlled interface where you have, you know, intestinal permeability and or leaky gut, um, and we have an uncontrolled interface. That's where we typically see the issue. So um, I'll back up just a moment. So the the essentially in the lamina propria, you have all kinds of, you know, we, we say 75% of the immune cells are there, whatever. I don't know. I don't know exactly who counted that. Um, <laughs> it's 78, but, uh, that's something that I, I personally have not counted that or done the, the literature. So I, I kind of accept that yeah. notion. Um, but the reason that they're there 
Um, so if you think of the, the uh, again, the innate immune system, the adaptive immune system, if you think of B and T cells coming from the bone marrow and the thymus, kind of that's where they mature, they go through what we call a central tolerance. They're not supposed to react to any of your own cells. And, and, and essentially, um, there's mechanisms in the bone marrow and the thymus that allow for essentially a system where um, you, can, you, you can present to these B cells and T cells all kinds of your own tissues. It's kind of a really cool system. Um, and then they're like, okay, we're, you know, if we, we got out of class and most of us didn't make it, it's sort of like the, the, uh, you know, the, the seal seal Navy seal training. Uh, I think uh, maybe like 1.1% of B cells make it through that or something. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very small amount of cells that can produce an, an immunoglobulin and not react across react to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they get out of, they get out of their class and now they have to go down essentially um somewhere in the periphery which is where we we take them to the gut essentially and we say okay now you we don't want you to respond to our friendly neighbors mm-hmm. our commensal organisms right so we need you to be able to understand that well it, you know I, I i've been saying this for about a year now um and i kind of need to write write this up because probably somebody will steal it from me um <laughs> hopefully not you guys <laughs> um, is that the adaptive immune system is horribly unadaptive it's not adaptive at all. It's got, it got this name because we thought it adapted to antigens, mm-hmm. but it doesn't adapt. It has to do all this before it gets, it, it has to do it in the naive stage. Mm-hmm. It creates its antibody and T cell receptor. And the only thing a B cell can do is produce the same antibody. It can convert from IgG to IgA to IgM, whatever. Mm-hmm. It can change the handle, but it can't change what it, what it actually attaches to. Yeah. Um, so it either has to die if it attaches to something wrong, or it has to go into energy or, or told to just basically be quiet. Mm. Um, and what tells it what to do is the innate immune system, the innate mm. immune system. So these are dendritic cells, macrophages. They are the ones that have all these pattern recognition receptors that are able to tell, okay, is, is what I'm, is what I am seeing here? Is this a friendly bacteria or not? Yeah. The adaptive immune system has no clue. It just says, I'm, I bind, I don't bind. Mm-hmm. And, or if I'm a T cell, I bind and I kill, or I, you know, I don't bind. Um, so the innate immune system is highly adaptive. It's able to say, okay, I can measure the lipopolysaccharide. I can, with my pattern recognition, all my toll-like receptors and all these kinds of things, I can see what kind of DNA or RNA it has, how it's methylated. I can say, okay, that's this pattern. Does it have a flagella? Does it have a spike protein? Does it have whatever, all the different components? And then it says, aha, I know what this is. And I'm going to tell this T cell, not only do you need to respond to this, but I'm going to give you the signal so you can turn into a TH1, a TH2, a TH17, a Treg or whatever. And I'm going to give you the nuanced uh, ability to even change your response so that you respond properly to this thing, because you have no idea what you're looking at. I do. So, um, and, but this is the problem when you have leaky gut, all of a sudden these antigens and these, uh, uh, you know, these other epitopes that are on viruses and and Mm -hmm. bacteria and protozoa and, and whatever fungi are now accessing B and T cells without regulation, without all the innate immune systems regulation. And all of a sudden, some of these that cross react can say, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but 
as soon as I bind to this, I am now going to start multiplying and shooting out more antibodies. Right. And I'm going to start shooting out more cytokines. And so, um, so along with the innate immune system that, sh that should be turning on certain things, we have now a bunch of uh, the, the adaptive immune system turning things on. And once the adaptive immune system gets turned on, the innate immune system does have this sort of knee-jerk response. And if the adaptive immune system over-responds in the gut, it just turns on inflammation. Mm -hmm. It doesn't know okay. what's happening exactly. It's like, why are you B and T cells responding so crazy here? I don't know, but because you're sending out, you know, interferon gamma and TNF alpha, we're going to respond with you. Mm -hmm. And because we're going to try to, we're, because that is the classic infective response. Right. So it's an infection. Essentially, it's an infection. Let's say I call it of the lamina propria. Okay. Not necessarily yet systemic. It's not like, you know, it's systemic. Like a lot of people think leaky gut automatically creates, um, you know, systemic infections and that's not typically what happens thankfully mm -hmm. um, but what does happen are the immune cells and the cytokines do become systemic so you typically see like th1 th17 and then you know kind of a cascade of you know tnf alpha il6 il1 beta and the ability to crank out these inflammasomes which just cranks out more il1 beta um, and that then becomes that then circulates in the body so while the cells, you know, receive that information in the gut, you can look at, you know, rheumatoid arthritis. You can look at, you know, a lot of these, uh, what we call immune mediated inflammatory diseases, which are often in the, you know, auto-inflammatory autoimmune cascade, right? Why the gut inflammation is often the key target to constantly pushing all of these inflammatory signals from these, uh, from this, from these targets. So uh, whether it's, you know, the environment, whether it's uh, foods, whether it's pathogenic organisms or toxins or things like that. So the, the, the gut-associated lymphoid tissue is really the major surveillance sort of interface between the immune system and the gut. The gut is our largest um, interface with the outside world. I mean, if, even if you stretch it out, it's bigger than the skin, mm -hmm. but also just the number of... Um, number of substances that we put into our body sure. through through there it, it has to really uh be a surveillance system so so that's why you know the gut becomes so critical um you know obviously keeping the the balance in the gut the lumen is really important so that's why we don't like dysbiosis but anything that affects the barrier then is like all all bets are off anything can happen at that point until you get that barrier repaired Man, okay. that was not just a tour My de force. My brain is exploding. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, not just a tour de force of <laughs> right. the, you know, how the immune gut system. immune system works, but the entire immune system works. And one of the things that comes to mind is what you were saying about the adaptive immunity and it not being adaptive. It's also, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that's the major part of the focus for like the last 40 years has been on the adaptive immunity. And we've been kind of obsessed with it and not really given the innate immune system its due. And the concept of the innate immune system being adaptive, I'm like, my yeah, brain's going to explode. Yeah. yeah. Well, don't steal that on me now. No, uh, I guess. Well, I guess, I guess now it's in the podcast. That's right. Podcast universe. Out of your mouth. My idea. Right. I wrote it all down. <laughs> but, but I, I do think, I think our hyper focus on, and, and again, I don't want to get into the debate about the, the effect of vaccines, but the, the reality is um, the, the more specific the vaccine is in this case to the spike protein, or to one part of the spike protein, um, the virus only needs to change a few things 
And guess what? The adaptive immune system can't do a thing about it. It's like mm-hmm. my my antibody doesn't recognize you anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I can't yep. change. I can't go back into the factory and say, let's let's change this. Um, and unfortunately, again, I don't want to get into a, a lot of the, you know, the debate on, on vaccines, but I will say that we're learning a lot about uh, when you inject into someone uh, a virus, or, or in this case, uh, micro, uh, um, a messenger RNA, um, or whatever, and you inject it, and that virus normally, let's say, comes in through the lungs, or it comes in, let's say, or into the GI tract, or something like that, um, or through the skin. Normally, it interfaces with the innate immune system first. Hmm. But a lot of times, when you inject uh, the messenger RNA, and all of a sudden you start producing cells that are just expressing viral proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're trying to trigger this response in the immune system, the immune system is not necessarily seeing that normally through the innate immune system first. It may be seeing it first uh, with a CD8 positive cell or something. And so the the context also can matter. Mm-hmm. So that's why um, the innate immune system is so helpful at helping the, the quote, adaptive, or maybe I will just use the older term, acquired mm-hmm. uh, immune system, um, maybe an, I'll invent the third name for it because it maybe needs one. Stoic, um, Stoic it, it's, it's very specific. It's probably the specific. I mean, it's the specific component because it's, hi- it's hyper specific. But in the case of, of, of in the case of, of, you know, the vaccines, it's so specific that if the virus mutates at all, then you have to again go back and say, OK, now I need a new mm-hmm. a new uh, immunization or new vaccination. So. Um, that's kind of the limitations that we see it's there. Right. Yeah. And we, you know, we have experience with that concept with respect right. to the flu vaccine and, and all the different variations of flu, you know, so it's, right. it's not a, you know, totally One, foreign concept. Right, that, right, right, yeah. right. But it's, and it's, we should have, I mean, we should have expected in some ways that if the more specific the, the antigen, in this case, the spike protein, the less, uh, uh, the less adaptable, let's mm-hmm. say, or or you'll you'll have only a very limited number of antibodies that bind to that. And if if you give a attenuated virus where you have spike proteins and all kinds of other components of the virus, you typically mm. have a little broader um, broader antigen uh, ability to bind to it. That mm. that makes perfect sense, actually. Yeah. And in the midst of the pandemic, like we were talking, like the the, the rapid fire um, literature that was coming at you through all of this, even as it's evolving. I'm just kind of wondering, in the literature, had you seen patterns or anything during COVID about the effects of the virus on the microbiome? Have you seen anything emerging? Oh, yeah. There's, there's been a lot of, actually, there's been a lot of review articles published on this. Um, and, well, I mean, there's a whole series. So early on, we saw, uh, and, and this, again, probably points to the fact, um, Thankfully, I guess in some ways that you know there's a lot more people doing stool tests and mm-hmm. and uh, microbiome analysis. So if we didn't have that sort of precursor data, we wouldn't necessarily have some of the early data. So we, you know, some of the early papers came out that you know certain certain uh, bacteria or dysbiosis maybe it wasn't always called dysbiosis. Certain microbial patterns, let's say in the gut, uh, created uh, increased vulnerability to the virus, at least mm-hmm. to the uh, probably to the A. The original alpha strain or whatever mm-hmm. um and there certainly was uh data that was coming out saying that there was uh, certain patterns that were associated with se- different severities hmm. um it probably got a little muddier when the severity of the, the various strains that have come out recently are, are less and less but we also learned um and then they started doing some studies where 
uh, before and after that getting COVID or having the viral infection changed people's microbiome. So right. they saw uh, a change in the microbiota. Um, we know that the virus actually replicates in the gut. So that was kind of a new phenomena that we started seeing. It replicates there. It, there's shedding of the virus there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how much, how much of the immune system was influencing the gut lumen and things like that. Um, and I mean, the typical things that we, we saw in the literature, I mean, there's a, you know, a drop in some, some of the studies, again, this is a plethora of data. They didn't all measure the same things. They didn't all report the same things, mm-hmm. but you generally saw a drop in diversity, a drop in, in some cases, lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. Uh, one that we think of uh, fecally bacteria prosnitzii, which yeah. is mm-hmm. often seen in a, in a broad range of, of uh, conditions, including inflammatory conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, it was seemed to be lower. Uh, increase in opportunistic uh, pathogens seemed to be there. Klebsiella, maybe Candida, some other things. Um, and then, you know, in general, a lower amount of butyrate, higher amount of inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this, this, that was kind of the bent that you typically saw, um, even though it was a broad range of things. We're now seeing um, data suggesting that either dysbiosis or, or a gut microbiome pattern either predisposes people to long COVID, you know, mm. to, to the long COVID symptoms or the virus triggers a, a change in dysbiosis, which then is a mediator of some of the long COVID that we're seeing, meaning that, you know, it is the the continued dysbio, dysbiotic condition that is one of the triggers for the, the plethora of of things that we're seeing in long COVID, which are still being obviously investigated for like exactly what is going on there. Right. You know, is it an autonomic nervous system issue? Is it a HPA access issue? Right. Is it a you know viral replication issue? And there's a lot of, and still a lot of questions. And I think the the gut dysbiosis that lingers could be a, a major contributor potentially in that in that phenomenon. And it just goes to show how at the end of the day, we keep coming back to, well, functional medicine, right? Right. There's there's so many different causes and uh, they all need to be corrected. And even the ones that you don't think inherently as being so connected, like the virus replicating in the gut and how Mm -hmm. dysbiosis affects that or is affected by that. I mean, it's just functional medicine at its core, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, it it does go back to first principles, you know, heal the gut first or whatever Mm -hmm. like that you think of. um, And, and, Oftentimes, as you guys will know, I mean, it's like sometimes the basic components of, of healing a patient are not as fun as like, you know, playing with all these little, you know, new clinical pearls and, oh, did you hear about this new thing? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you know, if they're not, if they're not eating right, if they're not sleeping right, if they got too much stress, if, you know, if they're depleted in nutrients and you're just, you know, you're playing with this other little fancy thing over here, you're, you're maybe missing some of the key components and, Clearly, the immune system is is a highly sensitive uh, trigger of environmental uh, influences. So your immune system, and, and it really should be, and like I tell people, and this sort of connects the two together, um, if you think of your liver as a, as a metabolic organ, it does, I mean, we think of the liver, it's doing all this metabolic work for us. The liver can't change its genome. The liver really can't, it can't change its genome, and it doesn't really, can't really change its metabolic capacity that quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the the gut microbiome can change literally within a few days. Uh, it can change not only its capacity, you know, its genome, but its enzymatic capacity, its its ability to metabolize. And so 
and and the immune system is sensing that. So as soon as the environment changes, the diet changes, the gut the gut microbiome begins to change, and the immune system senses that, good or bad. So you know, so it's literally if you think about how quickly you know, you've seen, you know you know when you go on like three days, hey. I just went to grandma's house. We just ate all this food. I haven't had a vegetable in three days or whatever. Right. And literally you feel, you feel sick. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and I think, I think the immune system is, you know, it's, it's that cytokine driving thing. This is not, you know, this, we need to prepare. Something's bad going on in our environment. We need to prepare. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you, you clean that out, you do a, a fast or whatever. And it's like, why do, why does everything feel so different? And I think the immune system is triggering that in, in a lot of tissues and especially in the brain. And, and that's where you sense that, that, that kind of feeling of dullness and sickness. Oh my. Yeah. Well, if, if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast and mm-hmm. you just heard Tom Williams give this masterclass on immune function, I'm going to tell you that if you get his book, Supporting Immune Function, A Lifestyle and Nutrient Approach, this book, your mind will be blown. And you can get this book at the Point Institute. You can get it at Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center. We will link to this in the show notes. Yeah. Tom Williams, as always, you're phenomenal. But before we let you go, we do yep. have one last question that I'm going to kick to Michael Chapman. Yeah, Tom, this is a this is the fireball question, and I hope you're ready Uh-oh. for this. Um, <laughs> we normally ask about favorite sandwiches and silly stuff like that, but I'm, I'm keeping it a little science this time. Uh, I think you can handle it. So my question is, <laughs> true or false, a virus is a living organism? Hmm. Oh my goodness! This is existential crisis. Look what, what you've done. What is life? What is, you're asking me? What li- what is life? That's what I did there. Yeah. Um, exactly. Wow. Wow. I, I think that you know, I'd hate to say yes or no to that because I'm sure I will get a lot of people. <laughs> Here comes the mail. And, and there's probably a lot of people wondering why are you even asking this question. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, I would say, hmm. yes. Okay. But in a very, it's, it's a, it's a hijacked living organism, meaning it's a, it's a hijacking living organism, meaning it's a, it's, it is the, it is the ultimate definition of a parasite, meaning it can't really survive without it on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but it does seem to have a life of its own yeah, in mm. a sense. So, so I, I, that is. That's a very tricky. I think the sandwich uh, question would have been a lot easier. I'm going to ask you about prions next time. Oh, Lord. <laughs> okay. We're, we're so sorry for that mental stress there, Dr. Williams. But again, it's been great talking to you, as always. Yeah. We can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And like I said, we're going to link um, both to the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center and Point Institute in the show notes to get this book. And Tom Williams, thanks so thank much. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Okay. I love to be here. That was incredible. It's always incredible. Um, He's a genius. Yeah, totally. And it made me think of this one thing as he was talking kind of about these aspects of uh, improving immune reserve and how it relates to just our functional medicine stuff, like, right. uh, you know, Metabolic getting, ad- resistance and, getting right. adequate sleep, yes. reducing stress Microbiome. and all these sort of things. And so I w- it got me a little naturopathic in my mind because a lot of us think of, you know, the first principle of naturopathic medicine, first do no harm, or the first principle of many different medical philosophies, right? Mm-hmm. But the very next one after that is removing the obstacle to cure. And I think of those things like stress management and sleep. Those, If those are not in order, you're going to have obstacles to cure, which in this sense is, you know, impaired immunity. Where I thought you were going to go with this, actually, is planning your attack to steal his thoughts about the innate immunity being adaptive. 
Didn't you see my blog post last night? <laughs> Sorry, Tom. I already, I, already stole, I already got it. Sorry, Tom. Next time on The Lab Report, we are going to talk to Taylor Dukes. Yeah, she's passionate about the gut, so we're going to talk about the microbiome and systemic health. Love it. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So now I have to wage war in the backyard. I have to wage war once again and destroy an entire ecosystem of yellow jackets. You love it. You love it. What are you going to just pour like gasoline down there and I blow am, it up? Or, uh, being what are we a naturopath, about? I must be the naturopath who contributes the most gasoline to the water <laughs> table across the entire United States. But well deserved. I mean, you got to kill those things, right? There are theoretically other ways to get rid of them. I have not found any of the other ways to work. Shoot them. So. Yeah, I'm not that good of a shot. <laughs>